If you're visiting today, or if you're, you're here for Easter, we're glad that you're here. Uh, you probably haven't been doing our Bible reading plan with us, and that's okay. Um, but we have been. We've been for the last three weeks reading through the Gospel of Luke. And for the next three weeks, we're going to be reading through uh, the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts. Uh, Luke's part two in his two-part volume two uh, to Theophilus, telling him the story about Jesus and all that's happened in Jerusalem and with his followers in, uh, in the years to come. Uh, I'd invite you, in fact, if you're here and haven't been doing the Bible reading plan, uh, or if you just have fallen behind on Luke, uh, we've got a bunch of our Bible reading bookmarks up here in the front row. Grab those after church uh, and just flip it over. In fact, you can't tell which is the front and the back. So as far as you know, you're starting where you should be. Uh, with the book of Acts. We're going to be reading through the book of Acts and preaching out of each week's reading for the next three weeks. Um, and, and man, this is, I'm, I'm enjoying this. And I'm getting feedback from a lot of you during the week of, of you being excited about what you're reading and interested in what's coming and, and talking about what's, what's past. And the gospel is a powerful, powerful story. And I think sometimes we allow the stories of the gospel to become ordinary to us because we've read them too many times. And a lot of times we read them in bits and pieces, but, but when you get to where you're reading daily in the Word and the Gospels and, uh, of Luke and, and, the, and Acts, you see how these stories are held together, and Luke is trying to tell a story that is not only giving you information, but causes in you transformation. Because you start to see the incredible things of Jesus, the incredible challenges in front of the apostles, uh, the things that he went through. This week, as, as you've been reading about Jesus' arrest, the time that he spent in Jerusalem, uh, leading up to that, his arrest, his, his trials, uh, the sentencing, the punishments, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the time that he goes and tells people, it is as I've told you on the third day, I could not stay dead, I got out of the grave. And they had a hard time figuring all of that, that out. And this week as I was reading, I kept going back to the courtroom scenes. And I really want to start there this morning. I want to start in, in Luke chapter 22 uh, in these stories because I saw this week a side of Jesus I had not fully appreciated before. And it's incredible how that happens. I, I've never once read through a book of the Bible and thought, boy, that, that was the same as I read it last time. There's so many layers to this man Jesus. There's so many layers to the gospel story. Scripture is so rich. And this week, as, as I was reading, I want to share some of the things that, that struck me because I've, just, I've been wrestling with these all week. In Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 66, it, it says this, At daybreak, this is after Jesus has already been arrested and he's been uh, in prison overnight, Peter's just denied him. And, and it says, At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you were the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all asked, are you then the Son of God? And he replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. These are the, the leaders of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. You know, a lot of times we miss that, that when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, 
in, in the Bible reading this week, he gets to Jerusalem right at the beginning of the week. And the people that are his opponents and that he's getting in arguments with changes. Uh, there's a phrase kind of through most of the early parts of the Gospel of Luke where it says that Jesus then was, uh, was tested by the Pharisees or sometimes the Sadducees come up and confront him and occasionally you'll get teachers of the law or scribes depending on your translation. But this group of people, Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, uh, those are people that are all over Israel and they're in Galilee and everywhere where the Jewish people live, there are some who are of the group of the Pharisees. They believe in the resurrection, and they believe that if everyone can be perfect and holy and live by the law for one day, that Messiah will come and make everything better. And so they care a lot about everyone's behavior, for better and for worse. It also means they like to be competitively self-righteous. Uh, I'm holier than you are, and you need to know it, because I know it, and everyone else should know it. A couple of us probably know some Christians that are like that, but don't, no pointing, none of them are here. Um, <laughs> Jesus gets in arguments with people that act like that all the time. He gets in arguments with the Sadducees who deny the resurrection and who are often a wealthier group and want things the way they've always been. He gets in arguments with the teachers of the law who are, are Jewish lawyers who read the Torah, the books of the Old Testament, and come up with all the rules and laws of Abraham. And they go and they try and figure out which ones need to be obeyed and to what degree and how much, and they grade everyone on the curve, uh, not on the curve, all the time. Lots of grading from the teachers of the law. But when Jesus gets to Jerusalem... His opponents shift. It's no longer Pharisees and teachers of the law. It, it's now uh, the chief elders. It's now the Sanhedrin. It's now uh, the priests that work at the temple. It's now the establishment in Jerusalem. Jesus isn't arguing with, with preachers and, and people with ideas out in fields anymore. Jesus has gone to the heart of Jewish power, to Jerusalem, to the temple, and he's gotten in arguments with them saying, you're not living the way God ruled. You're mistreating the poor and mistreating the foreigner who's among you. And he, in all of these different ways, confronts those with power. And the crowd loves it. They love it. And they can't believe that an outsider has come into Jerusalem to these people with power and confronted them to their faces. And they keep thinking to themselves, doesn't he know if he keeps saying these kinds of things to these kinds of people? This is the kind of stuff that can get you killed. And the people that he was saying it to kept saying, as soon as we get a chance, this is going to get this man killed. So when they get an opportunity in Judas betrays Jesus and that night with a kiss. Violence breaks out and Jesus heals a man whose ear is cut off because violence is not the way of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And he goes willingly with the Jewish people and he goes to the, the chief priest and the, the elders, the high priest, they're all there and they're, they're questioning him and they're putting him on trial. And don't you know how grieved Jesus had to be? As he's approaching Jerusalem earlier in the book of Luke, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, if only I could gather you. If I could just gather you. But even now, you're not going to receive me. And these are the ones, the leaders that have been praying for Messiah. And Jesus is there, and he is the Messiah. And they don't understand it, and they don't appreciate it. And they should be grieving, but they're not. They're angry. And Jesus is just, he has to just be torn apart by knowing that his people are being led by these who are looking after their own interests and not the interest of God, not the interest of God's people. 
So then the whole assembly rose, and they led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Before we go any farther, we need to take a, a page back, go back a little bit in history to understand the relationship between Pilate and the Galileans. Because this isn't Pilate's first time to come up in the Gospel of Luke either. Pilate comes up earlier in a story where several are talking about how injustices happen to people that don't deserve it. Good people have bad things happen to them. It's in Luke chapter, I think, 13. Uh, and, and, and they say, have you heard about have you heard about what Pilate did to some of the Galileans? That, that he killed them, and after he killed them, he mixed their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. It's this heinously cruel act. It's a horrible thing that Pilate has done, and the people bring it to Jesus, and, and the people ask him, what, what do we do with this? What do we do when horrible, cruel, oppressive leaders treat our people that way? And you'll remember that Jesus grew up in Nazareth in Galilee. That when Pilate does this to Galileans, that these are Jesus' neighbors. They're his countrymen. They're the people that he cares about. He may have known some of those who Pilate kills and does this horribly oppressive thing to. Jesus has that conversation then. Uh, we don't know with incredible confidence what happened, but there's some thought that what happened uh, is that there was an insurrection in Galilee, that there was among them a guy named Judas the Galilean who rose up and said, we don't want to pay taxes to Caesar anymore. We want freedom. We want independence. We want for Rome to get its nose out of our business in Galilee. And that that's when Pilate showed up and killed these Galileans and, and was cruel to them incredibly cruel to them, to make sure that no one ever did that again. Which would make sense when the leaders of the Jewish people bring Jesus before Pilate and say, this man is subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah the King. So do to him what you've done to the Galileans before. Now Jesus is on trial before Pilate and I'll tell you, this is what struck me this week. When I've envisioned Jesus standing in front of Pilate before, I envisioned him being calm, of him being almost emotionless and stoic and, and having this inner peace and strength of, of just meditating his way through it and responding, but with almost still-like indifference. But this week, as I thought about what would it be like to stand in front of the man who has done this kind of cruel stuff to your neighbors, I think Jesus was boiling inside. We don't know, but I, I just it does not fit to me that Jesus would have been standing in front of this man who's done those things to his people with indifference. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, 
he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Now, Herod's also showed up before in the book, right? Herod's shown up when, when he went and married his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, claimed her as his own. And there was a prophet who was out on the Jordan River who would say to people that they needed to repent and quit sinning, that this was not right, and that Herod was sinning, and that Herod was doing wrong, and that he ought not to be able to do the horrible things he's doing with his brother's wife. Well, Herod didn't like that, so he went and got that prophet, John the Baptist, and he threw him in prison so that he would shut his mouth and quit saying awful things about him and his choices to people that listened to John way more than they listened to Herod. At a party one night, Rodius' daughter's dancing, and it pleases Herod, and he says, I'll give you anything. What do you want? Up to half my kingdom, what do you want? She asked her mom, and her mom says, I want the head of John the Baptist. This is the John that preached that Jesus was coming and that, that Jesus praises so much as being one of the most incredible prophets the world has ever known. But it's also, if you remember, Jesus' cousin, First time John and Jesus meet, they've not been born yet. We read of how John, from the very beginning of his life, is going to be infused with the Spirit, that the Spirit would always be in him and with him. And so when Mary comes into the presence of Elizabeth, Jesus' mother, and John's mother, who are both pregnant, come uh, into the same room. As Mary enters with Jesus in, in her body, uh, it says John leaps with excitement, with the Spirit infused in him within Elizabeth. Before they're born, these two have this bond and this connection. And in the baptism, there's these, these incredible conversations between John and Jesus about who's the one to come and about which one of them is greater and worthy. And they're doing these powerful ministries. John asked Jesus once through some of his disciples, are you the one we've been waiting for? And Jesus says, the blind are seeing, the, the sick are healed, the kingdom of God has come near. And you know that John rejoices. And Herod, as a party favor, beheads him in front of a crowd. You can only imagine cheered at the spectacle of it. Herod's been looking for Jesus. He's been wanting to see his miracles and his power. He wants the performance of it. He wants a new party trick. We were told a little bit earlier, the rumors started going wrong. Even some of the, some of the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Herod's out to kill you. Jesus says, I'm not afraid of that fox. I'm not afraid of that fox. And here he stands in front of this man, Herod. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Because for a long time he'd been waiting to see him, wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priest and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. And then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. Can you imagine what it's like to stand in front of the man who has killed your cousin as a party trick? The man who is doing whatever he wants, a man who is really weak and of no consequence in and of himself, but who Rome has set up as this puppet ruler and who's making all kinds of parties out of it at the expense of Jesus' family, Jesus' people, one of God's greatest prophets. 
And I've always pictured Jesus standing there emotionless. And I don't think he could have. I think Jesus stood there with grief and with pain and with agony and anger. I think he was furious at this Herod. And as the chief priests of Jerusalem are, are saying all kinds of accusations, and as Herod is begging him, just, you know, do some kind of a trick, Jesus. Show me your power. Don't you think? If you're the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. Satan's temptation some chapters back. If you're the Son of God, just turn this stone to bread. That would have been tempting. How much more tempting was it when Herod says, if you're the Son of God, perform some sign for Jesus to hold back all of the anger, all of the grief, all of the power, because we know that he could have called 10,000 angels on that man who deserved it, by the way. But Jesus stands silently all of this in him, knowing all of it. And they dress him up with a robe, treating him like a court jester. The son of God, with all the power of God's army behind him. They dress him up, and they tease him, and they harass him. Do you know how much strength that kind of courage requires? Luke gets it, and I hope you get it today. What I want you to get today from these scenes is that Jesus is strong, is that Jesus is filled with courage, that Jesus knows who he is and what he's about. If he didn't have strength and courage and know exactly who he was and what God wanted for him, he would have blown Herod out of the room. He could have done it, and he didn't. He stayed silent. He held all of that within him, knowing that he wasn't there to make Herod nothing and Jesus great, that he was there to empty himself, being obedient even to death on a cross. And he does, and, and we know the rest of the story. The crowds cry, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. They flog him in hopes that that will, will, will assuage the crowd, and it doesn't. The crowd still cries out, crucify. They put a cross on another man who takes it up to the hill, and Jesus is nailed to the cross, and he dies. And he dies there not from weakness. Jesus dies because of his strength. Jesus doesn't die because he's not brave enough to do something about it. He dies because he is courageous enough and has a great enough sense of what God requires of him to get it done. And I could stand up here, it's, it's, it's a day that we celebrate more than any other during the year, although we do every day, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And maybe I should give you stories about the resurrection. Here's what you need to know about the resurrection. It happened. It's a matter of historical record. Jesus got out of the tomb. There were so many people who would have benefited from producing the body and saying, here it is. He's not alive. This is his dead body. The Romans, the Jewish leaders, Herod, Pilate, all of them, when that people start saying, this man, Jesus, is alive and got out of the grave, all they had to do was go get the body and say, no, he isn't. And they would have received great benefit from that, but they didn't because he historically, really, actually is alive. 
And, and I could go into kind of the, the theology and the teaching about, so what does it mean that Jesus died on the cross and rose on the third day? What does it mean for, for salvation? But let's be honest, you're here on Easter. I think you get it. Do you know that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins? Yeah. Do you know that in the resurrection that his new kingdom breaks into this world and that you're now a part of that? Yeah. We know that. What I want to look at is with all of Jesus' courage and clarity and strength, I want to look at how his disciples and followers responded when he showed up three days later. Luke 24, the passage that you've heard one or two times already today, says this. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Luke wants you to see the contrast here. The women go to the tomb and find it empty, and the angels tell them, Why are you looking for him here? He is risen. And they respond with not only faith, but with remembrance. They remembered his words, and they said, Yes, he did tell us that, and we should have expected it to be true all along, but we didn't. But now that it has happened, we've got to tell somebody. Exactly. They respond with, with confusion for a moment. Fear for a moment, but it's immediately replaced with faith and confidence, with excitement, with memory about all that Jesus had taught them. And they rush back to the others and they tell them, this is what we saw. And the others all say, I don't think so. That sounds unlikely. That doesn't seem possible. And here's something I want you to know. This book is not ordinary. We're talking about the people that saw Jesus walk on water and the people that saw him raise the dead. And when the women came and said, Jesus is not dead, he's raised and he's alive again, they replied with skepticism. They replied with doubt. And listen, if you're here today and you find that you have doubts about who God is and what Jesus means to God and what Jesus means to you, you're in good company. Because the people that spent three years with him are still wrestling with whether or not anything that they're hearing could actually be true. Confusion. Forgetfulness. Peter doesn't walk away remembering all that Jesus said. Peter walks away wondering to himself what had happened. Trying to find an alternative explanation for Jesus' 
disappearance. And then on the road to Emmaus. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Well, they stood still, their faces downcast. The women have just come to them and said, Jesus is alive, he's out of the tomb. And they decide, you know what, this is too much. Let's get out of here. We've got to go figure out what's next in life. And they get on the road, and they're walking to Emmaus. And Jesus shows up, and, and when he goes, what are you talking about? They don't reply with hope. They don't say, you know, the women said this, but, but we're not sure. We're, we're optimistic and hopeful, but we just it too, seems too good to be true. None of that is said. What they say, uh, what Luke says, is that they were downcast. They're still grieving. They're still grieving. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Notice they call him a prophet and not the Messiah. They've demoted him. Our chief priest and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Had hoped, are no longer hoping. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. They get to the hotel for the night. They invite Jesus in. He breaks bread and prays, and at that moment, they see who it is. And immediately, they return and tell the others uh, what they have seen. And now the evidence is, is gaining momentum, and it's gaining weight. And it's only there that Jesus shows up to all of them gathered in the upper room. And after the two testimonies, those of the women and those of these, these disciples on the road to Emmaus and, and the, the questioning that's now brewing within them, they show up and they're terrified because the text tells us they think they're looking at a ghost. And Jesus says, I, I'm not a ghost. Don't you know that a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have? Give me something to eat. And he eats broiled fish, which is the Jewish test for life after death. And he, I don't know. And they watch, and the food, I guess, doesn't drop to the floor. And they go, he's alive. He says, yes, I'm alive. If you need to, touch my hands, touch my flesh. Feel me. I'm alive. I'm fully alive in the flesh. Now they start to praise him. And you're sitting here reading Luke's gospel, and you've been turning the pages. 
And if you're Theophilus, you're flying through these last couple chapters going, what's going to happen? What are they going to do? What's Jesus going to do next? If the apostles actually believe this, what are they going to do next? And here's the ending that Luke gives you. That Jesus then was resurrected, he ascended, to he-, he blessed them, and while he was blessing them, he ascends into heaven, and they returned to the temple, and they worshipped there daily. The end. And if you're Theophilus, you have to just be standing there going, that's the end? That's the end? What about the fourth day? How do the apostles and disciples live on on day four? Like they just got belief that Jesus is resurrected. What does that change in them? What does that change for them? How do they understand the kingdom? What does the kingdom look like? Is it here? Are they going to start preaching and teaching and going on? Are they going to start doing the things Jesus did? Is Jesus coming back? What's going on? And I think Luke smiles and thinks to himself, I've got two reasons for doing this. One, I want you to buy the sequel. I want you to buy the sequel, because guess what? The story of Jesus isn't ending, it's just beginning. Because the Spirit's coming. The Spirit's coming, and the people of God are coming. And when the Spirit of God meets the people of God, get ready for the acts that are to come. If you haven't got your bookmark, get it today because God is going to do some stuff in the church and he's going to do some stuff in this church if we're willing to live into the fourth day, the day after you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the fifth day. And the day after that, what does it look like? Because part of what Luke is doing is he wants you to say, but Luke, what happens to these people once they become convinced of the resurrection? And Luke wants to ask, have you become convinced of the resurrection? And if you've been paying attention, the answer is yes. I'm convinced of the resurrection. And then what Luke says to you is, then you tell me what happens the day after you, a follower of Jesus, becomes convinced of the resurrection. What are the acts of these disciples in this room? fourth day the fourth day Jesus was born of a virgin Mary he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with with God and people he performed miracles and he taught incredible things and he had disciples and apostles and he gave them everything that he could and he promised greater things were going to come and it was going to come through the people that would follow him beyond the fourth day when the Spirit came and filled them and made them into his body, living forward even into today the ministry of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God in this and every generation. Luke, what happens to the followers who become convinced of the resurrection? And Luke says, I can't wait till you, my reader, show me the answer to that question. Jesus was crucified buried and resurrected on the third day, the question I have for you today is what are you going to do about it? If you need to respond to the gospel today, if you need to change your life, if you need to get excited and live like someone that is a person of the fourth day and the fifth day and the sixth day, start today. As we stand and sing.